right, all right. Day 124. Welcome back uh, to the Windows and Mirrors podcast. My name is Keith, and this is a podcast where we're trying to show you that the Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. We come to it to see through it and see God, not to it to primarily look at it and see ourselves. So, all right, remember last time we opened up the book of Psalms, and it basically means, you know, book of praises. And it's all about, you know, the main theme in the book is Yahweh is king and he reigns, right? Yahweh is king and he reigns and you see that God he God wants his people to experience the abundant life he has for them, right? And that is by paying attention to instruction, right? Paying attention to God's word and especially his word here in the Psalms. And you'll see uh yeah, as we talked about before, the Psalms are just an anatomy of the soul, right? Every inch of the emotional and uh, you know, spiritual spectrum is hit here in this book. So we hit, we come back with Psalm 5 today. And basically this is a lament. And so we have uh, my guy David, another Davidic Psalm. My guy David is here. And basically a lament is just a Psalm that goes from, you know, a problem in the beginning to a praise at the end, right? So David starts out calling and crying out to God and he is in trouble, right? And so he says in verse three, he says, yo, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. One of the things we see uh, that even though David is in trouble here, one of the things we see is this. When persecution comes, the best thing we can do is be persistent and expectant. Right. Persistent in prayer. That's what he says. He says in the morning, you hear my voice in the morning. He says it again to reiterate that. No, 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 no. I'm persistent. But then he also says, yo, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly, right? David expects an answer from God, right? And you may say, man, that's all well and good, but like, yo, David is going through it, right? Look at what he says. He says, yo, furthermore, like he says, yo, um, you know, these aren't just regular cats that's going after me, right? These cats are violent. These cats are treacherous. These cats are boastful, right? And David, knowing the way God works and the way the world works, asks essentially that the wicked get caught in their own schemes, right? That their own sin would come back on their own heads, right? And he ultimately calls on God to act as the just king that he is, right? And he reminds us, what I love about this about this psalm is that he reminds us that this stuff isn't just personal, right? Ultimately, the rebellion, he says in verse 10 he says, yo, punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. So in other words, what David says is this. The rebellion is not just against me, but it's against thee, right? One of the privileges of belonging to God is to be reassured that the attack of the godly is an attack on God himself. And so at the end of the psalm, he comes back and he talks about God as a shield, right? Our protection is a person, right? And so we just see, yeah, David uh, going through it in this psalm and then his trust in God towards the end. Psalm 6 comes. In Psalm 6, the tone is, is completely different. It's important to remember that, once again, this is an anthology of different poems or psalms written by different people in different situations. However, this is still David. But there's not always necessarily a logical or literary flow from one psalm to the next. And so Psalm 6, I don't think um, that there is one. I'm not, yeah, uh, yeah, totally ruling out the case. But here it doesn't seem to be, if we look at the text, that there is one. 
because David says, yo, he says, Lord, in the first few verses, he says, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline, discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me. Right. And so it seems as if David has wronged, done something wrong to the Lord or sinned in some way. This is why he pleads for mercy. Right. And one of the crazy things we, we see here in this psalm is that um, knowing the just and holy character of God excites and comforts us when someone sins against us. But oftentimes it cripples us when we believe we've sinned against God. Right. When we believe we sinned against him, it, it doesn't necessarily comfort us. It cripples us. And so David is going here. He's like, man, I'm weary from groaning. My tears have dampened my bed. Right. My whole couch is wet, like the whole nine. And, you know, he's shaking. He says, my whole being is shaken with terror. But the beauty of it is David cries out for mercy. Right. He calls on God to act based on his faithful love. And what I love about this psalm, once again, he is confident that the Lord will help. That's one of the things I love about God, man. Like God is not like one of your friends. Like I got so many friends. You call them. They never pick up the phone. God picks up all of his children's phone calls. Right. He never ignores. He never not answers. And this is such good news for us because some of us may be drowning in the depth of our sin. Right. Or we may be drowning in a multitude of tears. But the good news is that that this song brings out is that God hears our cries so much. Right. So much so that he doesn't just throw out a life raft as we are drowning or tell us to swim harder or tells us or tell us, hey, it's just your fault. You knew you can't swim. Why would you jump in the deep end of the pool? Right. No, he jumps in and saves us. Right. Because of his faithful and covenantal love for his people every single time. Right. And so, yeah, that's what David gets at here. And he expresses, yeah, a confidence in God that God yeah, will answer him. And he says, yo, it's because of your faithful love. Right. Rescue me. Save me because of that very reason when we move to psalm 7 we have unlike the last psalm this historical setting slash situation so david uh has been slandered right by a benjaminite that's what the the text says cush uh slanders him now if you remember a uh, the tribe of benjamin had a checkered past but most importantly in david's life they were known uh for having saul right so they you know saul is descended from the tribe of benjamin and yeah, you know that Saul and David didn't see eye to eye, right? Saul was mad that David was the heir to the throne, so he tried to kill him. So everybody from Benjamin ended up ended up turning against David as well, following in the footsteps of Saul. So this guy's Cush is slandering David, and David goes to God. There's a word in that right there. When folks slander you, the first place you go is not upside their head with words, right? You go to God in prayer. Notice how David, once again, goes with an explicit claim uh, of innocence, too, right? So we know that he hasn't done anything. He's like, yo, if I've done harm to the one at peace with me or have plundered my adversary without cause, man, enemy pursue and overtake me. May he trample me to the ground and leave my honor in the dust. In other words, our, listen, our, our cause for justice cannot be impartial. Right. David is like, yo, get me. Let me get the first lick if I did something to deserve this. Right. And from there, he goes on to what we would call imprecation. So this is an imprecatory psalm where he is calling 
for God's judgment on the wicked. Now, I want to say this. It is not sinful to pray against and ask God to judge evil in the world. Why? Because he will and he has promised to. Right. We should not want to see righteous. We should we should want to see, excuse me, righteousness on all levels of society, interpersonally and institutionally. Now, he finishes off with poetic justice is what I call it. So described similarly in Psalm five, how he talks about, you know, um, the wicked getting caught in the trap. But he says here, too, he says this, um, you know, basically he wants the wicked to experience what they're trying to do to other people. Right. His trouble, verse 16, his trouble comes back on his own head. His own violence comes down on top of his head, right? In other words, one of the main themes of the Bible, especially you'll see it in the Psalms, the wickedness of the wicked will ultimately backfire onto them, right? It's like the wicked take their weapon and shoot it at the righteous, only for it to boomerang back and hit them in the head. David calls for that here. And that um, ultimately he's just trying to get at this fact that he wants God to bring his righteousness and his judgment on to the earth. Poetic justice. All right. So finally, Psalm 8, one of my favorite Psalms in the entire Psalter. Psalm is actually one of my favorite books in general, but Psalm 8 is one of my favorite in one of my favorite books. So Psalm 8. All right. Although the titles of the psalm, so the title of this one is God's Glory and Human Dignity. Although the titles of psalms are not inspired, meaning they're not technically the word of God like the other words are, um, this title is just so perfect, right? It's so summative and poignant. Like it gets right at what the text gets at and God's glory. Yeah, God's glory and human dignity in the CSB. Um, but this immediately tells us that God is glorified when man is dignified. Right. God is glorified when man is dignified. So Genesis one and two are basically are the basis for this psalm uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Like they're the background. This psalm is kind of uh, adding a commentary to. So the psalm is bracketed in verse one and nine with the phrase this. It says this. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. So this forms a literary inclusion or inclusio, meaning that the main message of this psalm is that the Yahweh's glory fills the whole earth and even the whole universe. And out of every single thing that he has created, the text is trying to get at, man is the most glorious thing he's created. Man is the most glorious creature. In other words, to put it another way, man is the most glorious being in the universe that is not God, <laughs> right? And there are so many implications that we can draw from Psalm 8. It is so rich. Um, we could do a series on it. But for now, I would love to call your attention to the heart of this psalm, right? And it lies here. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. First and foremost, as vast as the universe is, as magnificent, as intricate as it is, the psalmist is saying, why would you care for small folk like us in an extremely vast and large universe that we inhabit? You don't just notice, but you care for us. You look after us. In other words, because you are great doesn't mean you don't deal with the intricate details of who we are and who you made us to be. Right. 
That's the kind of attention that you have from the most magnificent being in the universe. But then not only that, it says that you made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, we are made less than the angels in that we are here crowned with glory and honor. The word here for God is Elohim and Hebrews, the book of Hebrews will pick up on this text and say that uh, what he means here are angels. Right. And basically, God did not subject the world and entrust the world to angels. So in other words, this psalm is ultimately saying that humanity crowned with glory and honor are representatives of God's kingship on earth. Hence the crowned imagery. Right. And he subjected the work of his hands over to our hands. All right. So God wanted, in other words, God wanted human beings. God wanted human beings to exercise his kingship on earth where it gets good is that this you know uh put everything under his feet language right it's used throughout the scripture and then yeah again the world was subject to mankind's rule however man lost this in genesis 3 right and so the new testament picks this up whenever it talks about jesus's humanity right that he gets back with hum with humanity lost right first corinthians 15 ephesians 1 hebrews 2 it means to say that this that jesus as the true and perfect man ultimately comes and lives out what god intended for man to live out but failed to do that's why all things are under his feet upon his resurrection and glorification he sits at the right hand of the father as the true and exalted human king of kings that man can never be in and of himself that's the good news. That's that's part that that's the good news. Yahweh is king. He's exercised his kingship finally and definitively in Jesus the Christ. All right. God is most glorified when man is dignified. The image of God is understood and recognized when the image of God is understood and recognized. It would lead us to love and worship Jesus all the more because of how he takes this passage and fulfills it and wears it like none of us ever could let me pray father we pray right now um that we remember that yeah poetic justice god that the wicked will fall into their own traps but also god that we will remember that as human beings as your creatures we have dignity and that the more we affirm our dignity the more you get glory we thank you for jesus who takes psalm 8 and fulfills it and wears it and does uh, what humanity failed to do. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father with all things subjected to him.